0: Hello and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders in proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Hope for Healthcare podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Mohamed Salah, and I actually met Dr. Sala at the National Burnout Symposium in June in New York. He is currently a partner and consultant with the O'Brien Group and a thought leader in shifting cultural mindsets by redesigning business systems. Dr. Salah has, has a successful track record anchored in over two decades of hands-on transformation with a strong interest in making a global difference by providing distinctive leading edge lean inspired education and advisory services aimed at helping organizations to achieve the highest levels of performance excellence dr Sala also has over 18 years of consulting experience coaching executives clinicians teams and organizations he is an international keynote speaker writer, mentor, executive coach, and experienced trainer with the ability to relate to all levels within an organization, unleashing their full human potential as leaders while successfully aligning their objectives. Well, welcome, Mohammed. I am so excited to interview you today. I know you have a lot of great information to share.
2: So oh, thank, thank you. you it's here. such a pleasure.
1: Yeah, Well, um, I know that you have some really informative and inspirational slides to share with us today. I'm really excited about this format we're sharing. Um, But, you know, first, I always like to start out hearing more about how you became interested in consulting, learning about lean management, and helping our healthcare organizations adopt and integrate lean.
0: What a great question. Thank you. Um, So, I started my career as uh, actually a mechanical engineer designing seats for airplanes. Um, and and, and I, I recall at one point in my career, um, uh, the occupational health physician um, uh, of the organization I was working for approached me and told me, uh, you know, have you ever thought of doing some of these um, improvement works that you're doing in the manufacturing setting uh, in healthcare? And I told him it was inapplicable. Um, and so, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, influenced me a little bit and convinced me to take a leap of faith into healthcare. care. And um, I didn't know at that time, but he was the, the CEO of a medical group. Um, and so he brought me in as the director of continuous improvement around 20, 20 years ago at this point. And, um, you know, my wife would always tell tell everyone, like, I'm a recovering mechanical engineer, uh, so I'm, I'm a recovering mechanical engineer. <laughs> and so uh, in, in that journey, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. i made so many mistakes, um, and I've learned, you know, the things that work and the things that don't work over time. And uh, I started off my career really focusing on creating standard work for clinician practices. Um, And, you know, having almost a franchise-like model where as we open up more offices, we have a standard of how we open up these offices from exam rooms looking alike, from practices, um, one experience for any office that you go into. And what ended up happening is we grew our offices. And and the the individual that brought me in was Dr. Kent Stahl. Um, And when he brought me in, he um, was really adamant around uh, empowering people. Um, 20 years ago, turnover and the great re- resignation that we're seeing today was not as as big an, a, an issue that it is today. Um, and so got standard work under my belt and was able to help that organization grow from um, a, a few practices to over 36 practices in three years. Um, that caught the attention of a healthcare system who ended up buying the medical group and uh, pulled me into the acute care settings. And so in that, you know, um, you hear a lot of times it's all healthcare. Well, no, inpatient and outpatient are actually, it feels like a completely different industry at times.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so, in that, um, I ended up helping lead a transformation um, with an alliance work with the organization I was working with and, uh, and uh, Memorial Song Kettering. And so, my focus at that time was really oncology and neurology. And that was um, my first step into building institutes. And then that became a really, a passion of mine is how do you create, how do you flip organizations sideways so that you can look at it through the the, the lens of the patient, mm-hmm. through the continuum of care they go through, rather than looking at them as functional silos, being medical group, being specialty, being uh, inpatient, being rehab, these, you know, tend to sometimes work in a very silo manner. And so I um, worked with uh, a phenomenal leader, her name was Donna Hanley, and she helped lead um, the institute build uh, for that organization. And at that time, we really started getting into more systems thinking um, and trying to understand, like, what is it at a higher, more global level, what we could be doing to really transform the way we care for our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, it ended up being a, a, a greater role where then I was responsible of leading the entire transformation for the healthcare system, around 30,000 employees um, and uh, seven hospitals. And in that transformation, uh, I spent 12 years with them of trying to help them go through that entire transformation, really focusing on behaviors, focusing on team effectiveness, focusing on complexity thinking and system thinking. Um, I also, during that time, uh, was getting my doctorates and trying to understand what are the socio-characteristics that impede the adoption of certain systems that we kind of try to migrate in. We call them lean systems sometimes to try to bring them in. And what are the things that what are some of the characteristics of organizations that accelerate the adoption and what are the things that actually hold back the adoption?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so that served me really well as I started moving into consulting um and uh and, and starting working with different clients across the country to, to be able to like you know serve a greater broader purpose
2: Wow,
1: that's that's really an extensive background history, Mohammed. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I know you have a lot of experience in many different industries, but you're very passionate about healthcare as well, and so am I, obviously. Um, You know, one of the conversations we've had is is really talking about how your consulting group, the O'Brien Group, and you are really working to help health systems adopt and adapt and integrate lean management. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you do that successfully?
0: Absolutely. And
2: so I'm just gonna share a slide with you really quick. Do you see my screen or my emails? Yes, your screen. My screen, okay. (laughs) Is
0: that better?
1: Yes. That's perfect.
0: Awesome. All right. So Actually,
1: one just really quick for all of you listening, if you're listening in the car, or you're on a podcast on Spotify or Amazon, we will have the, all of these slides available for you, um, on the website under Muhammad's information.
0: Awesome. Great. Thank you. And so, um, usually the approach that we take is as we go into organizations, we, we really want to understand the appetite of the organization. Why do they want to do this? And so um, some organizations are copying what others people did as best practice. Some people are discovering their own of how they could be, you know, compete with themselves and how could they evolve from where they stand? Um, and some people are really just struggling with a significant problem and are seeing this as a vehicle or a venue to solve for some of those problems. In the beginning, as we started to understand that commitment, we really need to understand that why. Um, the area that I'm very passionate about, and uh, and and so are my partners, um, is really around understanding physician burnout, the clinician burnout, and understanding what are some of the contributing drivers that um, that, that that cause those burnouts. Uh, Doctor Dechant being you know a thought leader in this space, and um, as we do this, we as we understand the why, we also try to understand okay, what are the relationships they have with some of these issues, as well as what are the relationship they want to have with us. Are they looking at us as someone who will drive the change for them? Are they looking at someone who would just be an advisory, but they want to drive the change? There's an important, it's an an important step that is often forgotten or skipped, is trying to understand and outline the relationship of what what do you want us to do and what capacity you want us to do it in. Then after that, we do a lot of initial um, key stakeholder interviews. Uh, Usually we do a, a broad span of the entire organization to try to understand all the different players, what are their pain points, and kind of correlate some of those interview questions uh, and interview uh, feedback into buckets of potential opportunities that we could quantify around the why. And from that, we start fostering a commitment of how we're going to make these changes happen. So since burnout is a big, huge um, uh, national crisis in many areas, and a lot of people people are feeling distressed and uh, The some of the areas that when we walk out with fostering a commitment is things like, you know, what is our, you know, if you're in like um, uh, an EHR system, some people call it after hours or pajama times. How much time is uh, the physician spending after hours um, doing additional work that they couldn't fit during their day? Um, What is your employee turnover look like? What is your employee satisfaction look like? What is your patient satisfaction look like? Those are top key metrics that we look at as when we look at fostering a long-term commitment, having those so that we don't get so micro and wanting quick results, but really looking at the long-term vision here.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah. um, And so a lot of times um, in healthcare specifically, people want proof before they can commit. So we would have to kind of alter this model or adapt this model a little bit based on that need, but it comes with some complications when you do that. Uh, because the organization doesn't have really the commitment that we're doing this. And so you don't feel the oomph behind you know, that transformation. Right. Um, and so the second step, once we have that, uh, we start looking at assessing the current state of the organization. I personally have used two different tools that I find very valuable to assess the current state of an organization. The Malcolm Baldridge assessment tool is one that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and that's the one I use significantly when I do transformations. Um, uh, the one I'm most familiar with is the healthcare one and the school system one, and so those are the you know very similar to each other. Uh, but also the Shingo assessment tool, which is you know a very strong assessment tool to understand the current state of an organization. Each have different values, and mm-hmm. so I've learned to combine both of them into our own assessment tool, which allows you to have the best of both worlds. Um, the thing that Shingo offers that most other assessment t- tools do not offer is they look at the culture's behaviors um, and, and understand like what are some, what are the systems in your organization, what behaviors are you producing, not what results are you getting mm-hmm. um, And so it results is important, but it's not it, it, it has a deeper dive into the culture itself and understanding, okay, how are leaders leading with humility? How are leaders respecting every individual? Tell us the behaviors that they're going out there doing every single day and in a disciplined manner to respect every individual. Um, if And so th- both tools have significant value. Then we try to align the true north based on understanding the current state, understanding the why. Under, okay, now we want to align it to what our organization is trying to aim for. If it's a financial strength or some quality metrics or if it's employee engagement or if it's... Um, uh, Uh, You know, uh, patient experience. These are all different things that we want to align all our efforts around, whatever the gaps were around that. Then we start designing an approach. And I'll talk a little bit more later around designing that approach when we come to end this podcast. But designing the approach is actually talking about designing your transformation. How do you want your transformation to happen? Um, And so that's usually a long session, usually over multiple days, that we design this approach to understand. Everyone's on board. Everyone knows how we're going to be doing this transformation. And we walk out of that with a plan of how we're going to transform understanding both the risks and costs associated with our decisions.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I think, in what's so unique about your consulting program is that you do kind of like a mini. It sounds like a mini assessment of what the healthcare system's true needs are, because each healthcare organization is unique, and what you know what they want to look at, their drivers of burnout. So it sounds like you really tailor your program to the individual needs.
0: Uh, yeah, very, yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to just add to that is, as you look at that, that transformation and look at how you're getting um, the biggest bang for the buck, it's not—it's it, you could alter it. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and it's not set in stone once you have it. And so you learn as you go through this journey, and you could also alter that based on what you learn in the journey. Um, then we start looking at okay, this transformation usually has around five, I, I, would, I would call five main systems that are critical uh, to deploy. Um, the sequence is relevant, but also um, if you change up the sequence, there's some pros and cons that come with that. But the the first system that I usually try to focus on is how am I going to improve the people system? How are we developing our people in the organization? Um, and I would under want to understand the current state in my assessment, but then I want to understand how am I going to improve it? And so that's a system. What are the, some of the behaviors that are coming out of that system and what could we do to change those systems so that the people get developed more effectively and that it becomes a primary system for that organization. Um, I go into a lot of healthcare organizations and I talk about the word coaching and it's viewed as a disciplinary act. Mm. Um, it's not even viewed as development. And so that's a culture that we own and we have to shift that, you know, our job primarily is to coach and develop people. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, um, and I, I see this missing in so many clean transformations um, and that they do not include the people system as part of their focused areas. Um, the other two systems that are frequently used, one is the strategy deployment system, is how do we execute on our initiatives? Um, what's the process that we use today? And what's the process that we want to move towards? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, speci- especially living so much in healthcare, I'm more biased to healthcare
2: mm-hmm. uh, and
0: find that we have a very significant firefighting culture uh, in a lot of different systems that we see. And so how do we get out of the firefighting to be really focused on the true north, those, those few, you know, can't fail initiatives and just stay super focused on those. And I'll talk about those a little bit later today. Um, the other thing is around redesigning the value stream. And so looking at the patient's continuum of care and understanding what is the biggest pain points for the patient. And then putting action teams together to be able to resolve them. Sometimes they're called rapid improvement events that we do. Sometimes we're called Kaizen events. Uh, Mm -hmm. But those are, you know, large, significant, cross-functional team events often that are sometimes five days long. That, you know, people will design something when they go into this event. Uh, They'll test it during the event and walk out of that event with a finished product. Mm -hmm. So this is not a design session that we just throw a bunch of ideas and we walk out. No, we have to test those ideas during those five days. So people that try to shrink the five days to two days, they don't really benefit from the experimentation process that happens. And so they'll unfortunately find a lot of hurdles down the road because they didn't have the chance to experiment with them when they had this car protected time to do it in. Uh, The other area that's important is after we make these improvements, How are we optimizing how the knowledge, how are we sharing it? And how are we uh, warehousing it? And so we start getting into standard work and warehousing standard work so that if I'm an MA in one office, how does an MA in another office not reinvent the wheel with a new idea? And so we start looking at our knowledge systems and understanding how we're sharing information with one another. Um, In absence of this system, which is another system that's often forgotten, um, we see a lot of emails and email fatigue starts to become a symptom of that because we're using, all, we're using one vehicle for everything rather than understanding that there's multiple ways that you could communicate and there's multiple ways that you could save and warehouse things. And the last system is what we call the daily management system. Um, that's really a system that's in, in, enabling people to really sustain all the gains they got out of all these other systems. And so now daily management system is um, a performance system where a strategy deployment system is more of an innovative system. Um, and so this year's breakthrough innovation and in strategy deployment might become next year or usually becomes next year's daily management system of hardwiring those changes. Um, what I see in healthcare a lot happen is that we try to do everything all together. And so we just have now two years worth of initiative in one year uh, mm-hmm. or grading as one year initiatives. Um, and so these are often the systems that we focus on in this phase of deployment really depends on the size of the organization in the age of the organization. Those, it comes back to those socio-characteristic things that I talked about, of what impedes people to adopt certain systems. A large organization, a small organization will have different characteristics. A union versus a non-union will have different characteristics. Um, and so each one of those, there's no really a set time frame of how long these systems take to actually um, stand up and perform. It, there's a lot of characteristics that play into that. Um, and then finally, after you, deploy those systems? How are you sustaining and improving them? And so looking at like, how are we reflecting our strategic position? Is our operating model and that deployment systems serving us to have a strategic position or do we have to refresh it so that we could have a strategic position in our market? What's our commitment to principles? A lot of times we go after tools and we're not really focused on principles. So what's our commitment to principles? If one of our principles was like leading with humility, or one of our principles was uh, respecting every individual, how are we doing with those? Um, optimizing our deployed systems. And so going back and looking at all those systems that we deployed and actually scrutinizing them, say, how can we make each one better? Just like we do with our our normal initiatives, how do we go back to our, our systems and say, how do we make it better? And then looking at broader spread. And so starting to looking at what, what are some of these system gains and starting to teach and educate areas that have not done this yet so that they could learn from our mistakes. Finally, um, one of the things I like to do is what we call sustainable strategies,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and there's so many out there, um, and it depends on the context of the organization. But that comes down to there's an outside in strategies, there's inside out, there's inside in, there's a lot of different things you could do. Um, organizations, um, I'll, I'll use like uh, you know uh, Virginia Mason for example, um, or or Medicare for example. They had people visit their their uh, their sites which, you know, that costs people when they come to visit you to clean up your house. And so it created automatic sustainment. They had people go present at conferences, which created pride in, in what they do. And so that created sustainment. So there's a lot of different things you could do to do that. Um, and so but there's a portfolio of sustainability strategies that we use once we get to that phase. So at a very high level, I would say those are the... The things that we're like laser focused on and the approach that we take when people say yes we want to do this transformation it usually follows some kind of framework or construct to this um, that uh, kind of touches on all these boxes
1: i see and what's the time frame in general that you um, tell your healthcare leaders that it's going to take time to assess deploy and sustain the model
2: that you're Um,
0: i i tell them it's a journey not a destination um, and so, um, it's, it's, it, it, there's no real set timeframe. What I try to do with leaders is break it down to yearly bite, ch- bite-sized chunks. So, you know, they understand where they need to be in the next 10 years, but they could also understand what they need to do in the next year. Um, the next 10 years is very vague. The next year is very clear. And that comes out of the, 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 the when we develop the plan for the transformation the commitment phase and the assessment phase is the one that we have more control over and that usually takes somewhere between um around 6 months
1: okay all right and you know i know we've talked a little bit about some of the top lessons that you've learned along you know over the years mohammed can you share with us a little bit about that
2: absolutely
1: yeah uh,
0: so I'm going to go through 10 top lessons. Um, you know, uh, some, some organizations are doing these exceptionally. Some are struggling, but I hope that at least as we walk away today from this, that we have insight in what they are. Yeah. The yeah. first one is uh, we need to understand the gap. The problem is with an, a culture that's in a firefighting mode is that the tolerance of understanding the gap isn't there. And so we really need to take a, a step back, get really clear on where we want to go understand that gap, set direction, start harmonizing the charge with everyone and having a compelling case of why we're doing this. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Aligning the arrows is a really significant issue for some organization where you'll be in an organization and you'll find out that there's these three or four other areas that are doing similar work to yours, but with different individuals or different approaches or different things that they're doing. And the whole organization hasn't aligned that we're doing this approach. And so it's really important, I think, as a a lesson is if you have multiple things going on in your organization to take a step back and understand who are all the things happening, who are all the players, who's coming from the outside and who's internal. So, like, example, like, we're going to roll out rounding. How many other people are already doing rounding? And what are the different things that they're doing? And are we going to collide with them or are we going to complement them? Um, I think that step is often missed because it's rushed and too many people are excited in what we're doing. And um, and so taking a step back and getting clarity in the direction so that everyone's growing in the same directions is critical. Okay. The second one is um, we need to create our own operating model. You, you really can't copy like Toyota's operating model works for Toyota. It doesn't work for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really have to create your own. A lot of times we go into organizations and we do a site visit and we walk away wanting to copy a bunch of tools. Mm-hmm. Um, what that ends up doing is it becomes a facade of excellence. Uh, John Dyer talks about that a lot. And that that's, that's really not what the intention is here. What you're looking for when you do site visits is literally everything you can't see, not the things you can see uh the what we call them window dressings like i could copy everything that you know the window dressings of organizations but there's no there's no the, the why behind it the culture behind it isn't there and so when you walk into yoda and you see like they're doing a huddle around the board that's great but what you really want to look at is why do people contribute to ideas um why do people feel respected why are people improving here If you go up to an employee at Toyota and say, all right, you know, um, the idea you came up with yesterday, how does it contribute to the bottom line? They are very clear how their idea goes all the way back up. Um, And so uh, if you go to an organization that's doing huddles and pushing ideas, but doesn't have respect, you'll you'll see people still stressed, still burnt out, and not really seeing the benefit of this. And so it's really important that we build our own. We have our own heritage. We have our own wins throughout the years. And so let's just design our, our own. The things that we want to copy are the principles. We don't want to copy the tools. We want to copy the principles.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, you know, you see on this slide, some of the principles, um, this is borrowed from the Shingo Institute, but like to enable your culture, you want to start with like respecting every individual and leading with humilities. I've been talking about that a little bit today already. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. other, other principles like focusing on process and not people. Uh, and getting out of that blame game, um, looking at flow and, you know, and all the things that prevent flow um, and using flow as a concept saying, you know, nothing should be impeding flow. If a patient walks into your office, how do we make them go straight into the room when they walk in mm-hmm. and what is impeding them? Like, why are they sitting in the waiting room? What's, what's impeding that flow so they can walk straight into that exam room? Uh, that's, a, that's violating that principle. So we have to go all the way back and find out why is that principle being violated? Um, and so, um, I th- I think a lot of times we we get too excited about copying tools and artifacts and not really focusing on the principles. The principles is what we want to copy, not the tools.
1: I really like that, Mohammed. That's that's definitely a good lesson learned for sure. And I like that you say that you can't just you really have to tailor the principles and the tools the organization based on the organizational values
0: exactly.
1: as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. absolutely. You want to anchor everything, all those principles into your values as well, because that, that may it, it take, you know, it, it's it's the culture you want to transform.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you need buy in and everybody, you want engagement. And so if everybody understands the why of why we're doing this, it makes sense. And you get more of a collective um, engagement that way, I think.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And an example of like copying a tool, you know, I saw, I'm just making it, I, know, I saw an organization rounding. And so I went back to my organization. I, I said, you know what? We're going to start skip, doing skip rounds or we're going to start doing rounding. I just copied a tool. Well, if I ask those people, why are you rounding? They might say, you know, our goal is every time we go out to the floor, if it's an inpatient or an outpatient, to show how I can lead with humility. I'm going to perform a few things to show them how I'm leading with humility. I'm going to show them my curiosity. I'm going to show them how I'm in the moment, how I'm not judgmental and how I'm going to respect every individual while I'm out there. That's why I'm rounding. Mm -hmm. Not to go scrutinize and find what people are doing wrong and call them out on it. And so if I just copy the tool, I might end up doing that and actually harming the system more Mm -hmm. than actually helping it. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
0: I feel, okay, skip rounds. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to find what the issues are. I'm going to tell people we need to fix this because that's my job. Well, actually, that's not the intent here. You copied the rounding concept, but missed the invisible stuff, which was I'm going out there because I'm trying to show them how I'm going to lead with humility. I'm trying to show them how I'm going to respect everyone on this floor. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I come up with opportunities, I'm going to demonstrate how I'm going to ask more open-ended questions. I'm going to try to pull out of them, their ideas, and then I'm going to empower them to solve those ideas. I'm not going to come and dictate what they are or call them out on what I see. Mm -hmm. Um, very different mindset, but that's the difference between someone copying something and someone actually, um, following the principles. Mm -hmm. The third one, which... I personally struggle with, so I could only imagine how others are struggling with it as well. But our ability to do flawless execution comes down to aligning our goals and avoiding the new shiny things. Um, And so uh, I find it's very difficult to say no to initiatives in healthcare. Um, And so what ends up happening is we have no focus and we're doing so many things, and a lot of them might be even trivial things. And eating up organizational capacity. And so a big lesson is learned here. If you want flawless execution, you have to learn how to say no to these initiatives and understand that you went into the year with planned strategies. And unless there's a competitive market shift, um, then you shouldn't really alter from that. Um, and so something like COVID hit, that's an emergent strategy that came out that made us stop some of our planned strategies. That's, that's, that's reasonable, but. Not having that clarity and not aligning those goals and just saying yes to everything will dilute our capacity to be able to focus on the things that we plan going into the year. Mm-hmm. The fourth thing is um, the leader's job in these transformations, especially when they're saying yes to this, is to coach, not solve. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a really good book called Beyond Heroes by Kim Barnes and in her book she talks about the reason she named it beyond heroes um, she talked about how it's important for leaders to sunset their capes that you know even though their identities are really focused on problem uh, identities are focused on firefighting and they feel like they're hero once they firefight this for the teams
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: they're stealing the opportunity of people underneath them solving it
2: mm-hmm. even
0: though and so how do we you know, focus on that. We're not the hero. Our teams are the heroes, the frontline people that are serving the patients every same day. How do we, how do we make them feel like the heroes? Um, how do we empower them to come up with the issues that they see firsthand, not through a chain of command?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then how do we, you know, and, and how do we not judge them when something goes wrong? So there's no substitute for direct observation. So if Katie comes and says, you know, Mohammed X, Y, and Z is not doing their job on the floor. I have to go see for myself. I can't just take that and just start, you know, blaming um uh, based on the, the the information i'm getting and also as people are experimenting do they have a learning cycle like as they go through improvements um do we say okay you're gonna go try this what do you expect to get
2: mm-hmm. and so
0: they could think about what they expect to get so that when they don't get it they can learn from it
2: mm-hmm.
0: um that's uh, that's really important and then um, when they don't succeed how do you recognize them for at least trying Um, And so uh, a really critical point, but moving out of the, you know, the hero mindset of I'm going to solve everything to really focusing on how could I be a more effective coach for my team? Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up that point, Mohammed, because you know I, you know the 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 word hero is even a trigger right now for frontline clinicians. You know, yeah. it's not about me doing this or me being the hero. It's really just about us pulling together, and it takes a community uh, yeah. to really change our healthcare culture. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The- <laughs>
0: Number five, and and I'm not going to read through all the things on the slide. I'm just going to talk to it really quick is a lot of times when we do this work, um, people want to give us their biggest problems that they haven't been able to solve for 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And now we're trying to coach them through how to solve such a big monstrous process. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening, it's no different than going to the gym, is if you start lifting weights that you're not used to, you'll strain yourself uh, and actually almost paralyze yourself from going to the gym at all. Um, and so, um, it's really important as organization builds discipline, uh, and deliberate practice. They have to think of this as a gym. They're mm-hmm. showing up to the gym to build, to work out. And so you have to start with small problems and work your way up to a big problem. Uh, but if you go into it with a big problem and it fails, you'll find people to blame for it. And honestly, it's not even your fault. You went after a really big problem and you don't have the muscle to carry that. And what ends up happening a lot of times in this situation is people get strained and say lean doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so another big takeaway here is really focusing on what that looks like. And there's a lot of different things that you could do at the gym. Um, There's a lot of different exercises. So we try to always marry that up with a training center to be Mm -hmm. able to build the capabilities of those muscles through different exercise routines and having a, um, uh, like a simulation center. So people could feel safe trying different things And also an engagement model of saying, you know what, maybe in the beginning, we're going to help drive it for you. And then you could do it with us. And then we'll observe and advise you. And so really important in the beginning to understand that sometimes you might have to be in the backseat watching your uh, instructor, teacher, sensei drive this as you learn from it. And then over time, you'll be the driver and they'll be the advisor. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really uh, the the, the best way to really um, build that muscle is to watch someone that's doing it first, understand the proper way to do it, and then try to do it with them. And then at that point, you could actually start doing it yourself.
1: And you know, Mohammed, you mentioned something about a simulation. Can you ex- just explain that briefly? I'm curious. Yeah,
0: so sim- simulation centers, and, and they're all over the country um, where they have a center of excellence, which allows you to go to that area and actually try some of these things. So it would be an area with real life patients, with real life people, um, and that, you know, in that area, sometimes it's a mocked area, sometimes it's a real area. Um, And what it ends up doing is there's a lot of, um, I would call a little bit extra buffer in those areas that allow people to watch you, how you're doing things on the floor, how are you problem solving, how are you fixing things, and be able to help you build that muscle in that safe environment. Sometimes it's just like, you know, a, a simulation in a, in, a, in a training center where we, tra- we, we actually, um, you know, sometimes it's bead simulations with pipe cleaners and beads. Sometimes it, uh, you know, some people have done Legos and crafts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have done actually designed a real life center that almost mimics a real life um, uh, experience of a patient. And then that allows them to be able to work in that environment. And some people have centers of excellence that allow you to do that with real life. Um, situations and patients.
1: Oh, that's terrific. I love that idea, especially as a psychiatrist role playing and doing yeah. work is really beneficial. And I think it allows you to see how it works from the very beginning at the beginning process of the patient entering until the end when they're being checked out. So that's great. Yeah. yeah.
0: Lesson number six is when you're redesigning, um, you need to be fully engaged. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of times, you know, that we I, I try to understand a little bit so that sometimes it's just terminology, but there is a difference between buy-in, commitment, and engagement. And a lot of times people that are bought in think they're engaged. They're not. Uh, and so there are very different definitions. Buy-in is really someone writing the check and giving the charge and authority to go do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, commitment is someone saying, you know what, well, I'm committed to this. When there's an issue, come to me. I'll help you fix it or remove that barrier. Engagement is really saying I'm going to roll up my sleeve, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to do it with you guys. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the presidents of a healthcare system I was working with, I coached her for over seven years, and in her um, in her trajectory doing this, um, in year number three, she said, "You know what? I want myself as the president and my direct reports to be the ones providing lean training to all the frontline staff. Mm-hmm. And you know, could you teach each of us like maybe two or three hours worth of content and have us train our people?" That's awesome. That's fully engaged. Um, and so you know, we we talk a lot is a lot of the reasons these transformations fail is it the leaders on top view it as a spectator sport.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This is not a spectator sport. You need to roll up your sleeves and you need to go out there and you need to do it with your people. Um, and that's really the only way these barriers are removed and the only way that you see the challenges of your own culture as they go through this yourself. Number seven. And this is a piece that, is, um, that is, is very near and dear to me because a lot of times people will ask, when is this over? Uh, like, when are we, you know, when, when could you finish daily management? When could you roll this out? Like, wh- when is this? And this is not an IT installation. So it's really, it's, yeah, exactly. so you'll see a lot of people, especially in the change management world, the lean world, um, even uh, continuous improvement world in general, um, we never use the word like program, because program sometimes indicates that there is a destination. Um, we don't have a de- destination; we have a journey. Um, and so, how do we create that journey so that as we go through this journey, um, we are constantly learning and evolving? Because um, you know, it, healthcare is it's a never-ending journey, and so it's hard to define a destination for something like a healthcare transformation when it's consistently evolving over the years um and so viewing it as a journey um and not a destination i think it's critical i think um you know there's uh i'm blanking on the author's name right now but he he was talking a lot about finite versus infinite games mm-hmm. and a lot of times you want to be in that infinite mindset not that finite mindset where you're you know you're you're playing to stay in the game you're not playing to win and so people, you know, people like Microsoft, um, you know, they're they're playing for the in they're they're playing for the journey. They're not playing for the destination.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
0: if a competitor of theirs does something better than them, they'll say that's great, okay. Uh, but they're still looking at the whole journey. They're not looking at oh we lost. Uh, no, it's, that's not it. Sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. But if you look at it as a trajectory, uh, that's huge. And that's something something like the Shingo assessment tool allows you to do. They, they quantify things like a, a qualified phase, then a bronze phase, then a silver phase, then a gold phase. Okay. And gold means that you're the best in class in the country. That means anyone in the country that wants to visit the gold standard, they can come to you. And now because everyone around the country is trying to be that gold standard, it's constantly a moving target. So it will always be a journey. Um, and so and it will always pull you towards that gold, that best in class. How you design that criteria, each organization can design it in each, each, each way they feel like works best for them. However, if you go to the Shingo Institute or the Malcolm Baldridge, they, there's a lot of tools in there that could help you design this. And when we work with organizations, we help design it for them
2: mm-hmm. or with them.
0: Number eight is um, we want to make sure that we don't go wide and shallow without actually making a dent in the organization. And so it's critical that we go deep into a value stream. Um, When I was working with a large healthcare system, uh, we did a, um, uh, you know, I had around 30 individuals reporting to me, senseis and facilitators. And so, you know, we had a a, a good amount of um, footprint in the organization to be able to go deep in certain areas. And what we ended up doing is we ended up picking a patient, just one patient that was an oncology breast patient. And we followed that individual throughout the entire continuum of care of that patient from medical group to specialty to inpatient, radon, surgeon, medonk, all that stuff inpatient and out to rehab, survivorship, and even got into like, you know, research and clinical trials and stuff like that to see what the, all the way to rehab and, and, and home care and look at every single step of the way that patient touched and what got in the way for that patient. And we said, if we could make a difference for that one patient, what would we have to design across all the entities?
2: Mm-hmm. And so
0: in this, in, this, um, in this example, there's around 480 departments in this healthcare system. And we found only 14 departments that patient touched. And so we t- selected those 14 departments, you know, throughout all the entire continuum of care, one in rehab, one in, um, you know, a few in the inpatient world, a few in the outpatient world, um, and even all the way up to strategy and marketing, how they found out about, about us, because they touched that too. Um, and we went through the entire of those 14 and we spent a year making sure that we improved the experience for that patient. And what ended up happening is there's things that the patients that had, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, something questionable, a tumor of some sort, um, sometimes would wait three to four weeks until they would get, you know, a, a direction of what we're going to do with them. And, um, and they were able to cut that down to two or three days. So patients that have something suspicious, within two or three days, they know exactly what their treatment plan is going to be. And so things like that. And so we started looking at that. But as we were going down, we also started designing a daily management system in those 14 areas to say, how are we going to make things visible? How are we going to communicate each day? How are we going to look at if we're winning or losing performance wise? And how are we going to, as we look at winning or losing, how are we going to make sure that when we're not, that we're learning from it and coming up with improvement ideas to move us forward? Number nine um, is during this process, it becomes very messy. Um, Why? Because as you're building a daily management system in one area, uh, now you're creating a hybrid management system under your chain of commands. And so if both Katie and I work for the same director, um, and Katie is live with daily management, a new management system, and Mohammed's still in the old one, that director has to deal with two different worlds. Mm. Um, And it gets worse for a VP who has now multiple directors, some on this system, some not on this system. And sometimes for that vice president to have everyone underneath them on this new system sometimes could take up to a year. Um, And so that means that individual will be in a very messy place for an entire year. And, you know, and, and you just have to trust the process that you'll get out of that messy system. Um, and, but if you feel like it's too hard for you, or it's too messy, or this is not working, I can't manage like this, uh, you end up short circuiting the circuit and not continuing with the transformation.
1: Well, and Mohammed, I think this is probably where leadership coaching is very essential to help, you know, learn how to have coping skills and hold the space for managing these two different worlds.
0: I love what you just said. Yes. Um, and the reason I love it very much, it's, it's lesson number 10. <laughs>
1: Oh, hey, awesome. <laughs> I did not know that. Just so you know. <laughs> it's only and for so, me too today.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so as you're in this messy system, um, how is you as US leaders from the CEO on top, all throughout the chain of government, how are you supporting these people in this messy world? as they transition from one area to another in this gray swamp, I'll call it. Um, and so um, you as leaders have to do what we call leader standard work, which is very hard because it requires certain discipline and rigor and routine and rituals mm-hmm. uh, that you want to do on a consistent basis. And so how am I going out to the floors and understanding their, their barriers? How am I going out and doing waste was to understand their pain points? How am I talking to patients to understand the impact How am I talking to employees to understand what motivates them and what could I do differently as a leader to them rather than depend on my chain of command to tell me I'm going to carve out time because it's important to me too, to go out there and make sure I'm demonstrating certain behaviors as they go through this, because they're going to need to be coping with it, just like you said. And so what could I do to help them cope with it? How could I go out there and carve time to go out there? Some people do like no meeting zones where it's like two hours a day. No one can have meetings and everyone goes out there and supports. Um, and that's become very successful as a, 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 an approach of doing this. Um, and some people try to just bake it into their calendar and just have people underneath them have visibility to their calendar to understand that here's protected time. I'm going to talk about every day in my huddle so people know today I'm going to be protected from 11 to 12. Uh, 11 to 12. I'm going to be out to the site, and this is what I'm going to be doing.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so it depends on the area, but it is the glue that holds all of this stuff together. And so organizations that are really not disciplined on a leader's dinner work find that they really don't sustain most of the gains and there was a study done um i want to say it, maybe six years ago at this point that said almost 95 percent of organizations that fail at this is because they don't have leader standard work um, and so and some organizations even roll this out with no leader standard work and so it's th- that makes it not only impossible to achieve the success that you're looking for but it also uh, is very disappointing toward people in the organization. So these are the 10 bullets, but before I end on those, I do want to just point to you, point to something really quick. There's this um, concept called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Okay. This applies to transformations as well and lean transformations specifically. And I I, I, I I borrowed this from um, one of my senseis. His name is Joe Murley and he um he talks about how when you get to that peak of confidence in the beginning, the, we call the arrogance phase.
2: Mm-hmm. No one likes
0: to hear that, but that's that's what's that's that's the science. So that's what it's called. Yes. Uh, and in that arrogance phase, you know, we do a lot of process kaizens. We have standard work. We have daily management and visual management. We have we have performance tracking through the tiers. Of the organization, uh, and we think we know it all now. We're, we're done. Like we're we're, we're lean. Uh, I'll hear people say that, or we're Six Sigma, or we're Agile, or we're Scrum, whatever the methodology you're using.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what ends up happening right after that, this tidal wave of disappointment that comes when you realize things aren't working, and nothing's being sustained, and there's limited adoptions in pockets of your areas. Um, and it ends up being at this unfortunate crossroad of are you going to abandon all these efforts and just make it a flavor of the month? Or are you going to continue? And mm-hmm. the deciding factor of continuing or abandoning comes down to two things. Are you going to start doing leader work more disciplined? And are you going to advance your problem-solving skills of the people that report to you? If not, you're most likely going to abandon it. If you do, then you have an ability to go back up again. And when you have the ability to go back again, the the thing I just want to bring your attention to is you'll never reach that arrogance phase of confidence again, because now you know you don't know everything. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, And so uh, this is a really important um, uh, model for leaders that are going on this journey, because sometimes you'll see people six months to a year in think they've got this now. Mm -hmm. And we'll get a phone call like a year and a half later saying everything that we built fell apart and we need you to come back to help us rebuild it again um okay, and so right. if, if there's anything that you could walk away with today is that be very careful of this area because leadership work is what's going to get you out of it but also it's inevitable that you're going to feel that confident and so just don't let it you know consume your thoughts and feel like you've got this because there's so much learning in this journey mm-hmm.
1: You know, Mohammed, I really appreciate you going through the actual reality of adopting culture change for a healthcare organization. Um, you know, it's you know, as a psychiatrist, I have, a, I guess, a special appreciation for what it takes to do real internal quality change. And it is a commitment. And, you know, that's the effect that you just described happens with any kind of change, right? Um, you know, in the beginning, it's kind of fun to start looking at everything, you know, your first initial appointments, even in coaching or therapy, it's kind of fun to look at everything and tackle it. And there's ideas and there's creative, creative solutions. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I mean, I really have to change how I operate, and this is hard work, and I'm losing leaders, I'm losing friends, I'm losing colleagues, and we're having to redesign things, and it's tough, but like, I love the way that you take us through the stages of consulting and and what it looks like um, for an organization to really have lasting change, and that's what we want, right? It's the commitment and the sustainability.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to end it with just um, a comment around, you know, this is really hard work, like really, really hard work. And there's a few things as you go into this, you just need to be mindful of.
2: Mm-hmm. One
0: is um, there's going to be barriers or what we call, you know, uh, organizational walls mm-hmm. that have been there for ages that you have to knock down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot of courage to knock those down. And a lot of people don't want to knock them down, so they don't go down that path. Um, I would I would tell you, if you're not willing to knock those barriers down and change the status quo, I wouldn't go on this journey at all mm-hmm. um, because it really is going to be a waste of your effort. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I want to say is that as you look at this, um, being able to look in the mirror and find out how you're contributing to the problem as leaders throughout this transformation constantly um, is, is a game changer. And so either on a biweekly basis, you ask everyone that reports to you, what could I be doing better? Or going out there and being vulnerable to people on this frontline floors and say, Hey, I made five decisions today. Any, do you think any of them were wrong decisions? Um, and, and being able to be vulnerable and getting feedback and self reflecting in this journey is, a, is another big piece of what makes or breaks these transformations.
2: Mm-hmm. And the
0: third one is if you're committed, then you need to, you need to be fully engaged. Yeah, um, you, again, I, I know I've said it before, but I'm just saying one more. This is not a spectator sport. This is not something you could delegate. Uh, this is something you have to actually do yourself. And the, the higher up it's influence, the more successful it's going to be for organizations.
1: Mm-hmm. I completely agree, Muhammad. I don't even know if I want to comment on that. It was just what he said. So I, yeah, I think it's a good place to end for our audience. I mean, I, I was going to ask you if there's one last thing that you wanted to share, but I think, um, <laughs> I think the commitment piece is definitely a good place to, to wrap up today.
0: I yeah. love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate this and I appreciate the, getting the time to talk to the audience.
1: Absolutely. And for all of you listening today, I'll have all of these, this information on Muhammad's bio page on the website we'll be posting on social media. And I'll also have links to the multiple articles and um, the assessment tools that he mentioned today as well. So, awesome. all right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We hope you have a great week. Thank you.